Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30-minute update on the latest in South African and global news, live and then as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Tuesday, the 9th of January. Coming up in the program is the East Rand Gold One Labour standoff, a sign of more mining tension to come in coming weeks. Growing calls to hire unemployed doctors. How do we find ourselves in this situation? The politics around the annual matric results circus. The country's biggest judicial appointments test is looming and concern over the increase in teen pregnancy in South Africa. Ongoing difficulty at the Gold One Modder East operation in Springs east of Johannesburg after hundreds of miners were fired for staging an illegal strike last year. More now on that developing story as we joined by Lubawani Mamburu from the National Union of Mine Workers. A very warm welcome to you. I understand that you, along with AMCU, have been meeting management uh, today. Is there any outcome? Uh, Jeremy, let me clarify something. Uh, we, we're not meeting Amku. Amku is not here. I'm here at Crossflay Mine where those workers who have been uh, dismissed are receiving letters of their dismissals and others are appealing. As I speak to you now, we, were, we met the management here that informed us uh, 445 workers has been dismissed. That is the latest update. And uh, more than 135 have appealed their dismissals, and which the NUM is um, going to represent them in those uh, appeals. What steps then are being taken to negotiate their reinstatement or compensation beyond assistance as far as the appeal is concerned? Um, you know, what happens is that um, once an, an, an employee received a letter of dismissal, so some of them decide to appeal on their own. Others are coming to the NUM to say, please represent me on my on my appeal. Because some of them are saying, Jeremy, that uh, they were forced to be part of these two or six situations that, uh, that happened last year. They did not want to participate. So that is why they are um, um, appealing their dismissals. Another representative from the National Union of Mine Workers is quoted as saying that Gold One has taken an incorrect decision and that certain processes have been overlooked. What are those processes? Now, the processes are that um, uh, the majority of workers who are, who are finding themselves dismissed are the ones who were forced to participate in, that, in those hostage situations. Uh, that some parties were saying that we we sit in. That is why we're saying that it's unfair that uh, workers who were forced in an underground hostage situation are now finding themselves dismissed. And uh, we are saying as the NUM, we are not happy about that. That is why the majority of members are appealing those dismissals. 
Could you give me more clarity on that phrase, hostage situation? What evidence do you have to support that claim, given that uh, AMCU says that it was simply a voluntary sit-in? It's not, Jeremy. We have eyewitnesses. Uh, in the second hostage uh, situation, we have eyewitnesses who escaped uh, before the hostage situation could happen, and they did confirm with us that um, it, 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 it was a hostage situation because those instigators were wearing balak gloves and preventing workers from coming back to the surface. And uh, secondly, Jeremy, we have got uh, members who have been assaulted and badly beaten, members from Solidarity and NUM. Some of them ended up in ICU. As I speak to you now, some of them have, have just been released. Uh, so, so that is why we are seeing that uh, it was a hostage situation, and uh, that is why you also see um, uh, the, this kind of dismissals um, that that had just happened now, and, uh, and and a lot of members are now confirming now now they've realized that the situation is serious for them. They are now revealing the truth of what happened underground. Who are you alleging beat them up? The instig- uh, I can't pinpoint, uh, Jeremy, because as you know, uh, uh, that uh, the NUM had a close shop agreement here, yeah, which we cancelled. Um, and the NUM was the only recognized union here, and it's still the only recognized union here, Jeremy. But what I can tell you is, is alleged AMCO um, members, because even their president, Joseph Matunjwa, came and addressed them here at the mine dur- during their illegal strike. I'm going to put the question to you again. You've made the allegation about your members being beaten up. By who? By the instigators who, 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 hold them, uh, who held them hostage underground. And uh, the instigators that the company has identified them. Who are the instigators? No, Jeremy, that is why uh, I, I can't uh, go uh, on record with that one. I did see that uh, some of them are alleged AMCO members. All right. Thank you very much indeed. Lebowani Mamburu from the National Union of Mine Workers. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The South African Medical Association Trade Union is calling for the Department of Health to employ hundreds of qualified unemployed medical officers. The body is claiming today that over 800 qualified doctors remain unemployed following the completion of their two years of medical internship and one year of community service. More on that now from Dr. Cedric Sislangu, who is the General Secretary of the organization. So, Doctor, just how bad is the situation? Yeah, a recurring problem. For the past couple of years now, I think we're probably beyond five years of the same thing happening. It did start off with um, lack of funded posts for interns some years back, which was sort of resolved to the extent that this year there's very few interns that haven't been placed. And then it went on to affect community service doctors, where even though doctors would have finished their two years of internship, then for the year of service, doctors were told, there's fiscal constraints, there's no money in the coffers, and they couldn't find funding to absorb those comserves, which it's still statutory years that they must serve. But now what has happened is the doctors have finished their two years community service, finished their one year, so two years internship, one year community service. Now they are post-community service. So these are fully qualified, independent medical practitioners ready to serve the nation, registered as such. And uh, unfortunately... Now they can't find jobs in the government sector where 
they are mostly needed. If you recall, the balance of um, you know the population, about over 80% utilizes the public healthcare system, and it's only a minute portion that uses the private healthcare system because, of course, our people literally can't afford healthcare. Mm. As a result, these doctors who are now meant to go to the far-flung communities to serve the poor and the marginalized can access them because they're simply out of jobs. And the upshot of that is what? Could we lose them to posts overseas? It goes without saying. Um, Remember, at the end of the day, when you are at the level of post-community service, you would have worked for three years. And the chances are these doctors have committed themselves. They have borne some of them. Some of them have purchased cars for credit. And for them, it's a do or die. They have to find a solution or get out of the country just to make ends meet and, and, and sustain their families. So that's what we are seeing. But also... Some of them want to go to the private sector. They open GP practices here and there just so that they can be able to make a living. The problem with that is the bulk of the population cannot afford private health care. And it creates a situation, like I indicated, that Mm. so these doctors become unaccessible. So how then do you assess the Department of Health's handling of the situation? It has been very poor on the basis that this is a recurring problem. And you'd expect a government that is conscious of the problems of the country to put systems in place, proper planning to avert such occurrences. We wrote to the department late last year, towards the end of November, early December, indicating that this has been an ongoing problem and we do not want such a situation to recur in 2024. And we requested from the departments, all nine provincial departments and the National Department of Health, to say what plans have been put in place to avert this occurrence. And I kid you not, we did not receive even a acknowledgement of our correspondences, and it shows you the lethargy that the Department of Health, the nine provincial departments, and the national department for that matter, that they're operating at. There's really no eager or zeal to solve the problems of this country. So it seems to me that you're at a crucial crossroads. Now, what's your next step? We believe that um, health by constitutional right and by legislation the authority that is to ensure this adequate provisioning of health care services is the ministry of health but more importantly we take you know dimly from uh, to a minister that says well um i do not have money the money is with the minister of finance and pointing fingers to another arm of government as it were we believe that the ultimate person to account when everything is said and done, is the president of the republic. And if there's a failing healthcare system, ultimately the president must account because a minister of, of health who points to a minister of finance who points to thin air does not serve in solving the problem. Our huh? position now is that the president must account on a failing healthcare system on how this problem will be resolved. How close are we, given what you've just outlined, are we to a collapse in the rural health system in this country? I would go as far as saying we are experiencing a collapse. Because, you see, when you go to a facility in the rural areas, the outskirts, ordinarily now you find only one doctor rotating per week. Already that means that all these conditions are becoming more and more chronic and a simple condition that could have been resolved at a preventative stage or at an early intervention stage, becomes all these type of cancers that are far advanced that we can't do anything about. And literally, people are being subjected to a conviction to death, if you would want to use those harsh terms, because the system is simply 
not coping in the rural areas and people are dying. And that's the unfortunate reality. Dr. Cedric Sihlangu, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. This year is a watershed one in the judicial system as possibly three of the top four positions in the judicial hierarchy will have new incumbents. Mbeki Zili Benjamin is a research and advocacy officer at Judges Matter. It's a civil society watchdog and says this is going to be a year of the most rapid change in judicial leadership since 1994. He joins us now on the program. And first up, how then do you believe this change in leadership is going to impact the functioning and even the direction and the philosophy of the country's judiciary? Well, I think it would have a, a profound impact, particularly at a leadership level, because it is one of those rare instances where three of the top four positions in the judiciary will have new incumbents. And that includes the chief justice, possibly the deputy chief justice and the deputy president of the Supreme Court of Appeal. And that fundamentally changes the leadership direction of the judiciary. That means a new leadership team will possibly come back and might bring in new philosophies, a new way and style of doing things. And so I think this year is particularly profound. And if you factor in the elections as well, whoever is elected president will will be the one who makes the final decision on who those three incumbents will be. And quite possibly the new president will have a really strong impact on the leadership direction of the judiciary. You talk about a change in philosophy, possibly, and style. Is there risk attached to that? Well, I wouldn't say there's a risk. What could possibly happen, for example, if current uh, Deputy Chief Justice Maya ascends to Chief Justice, she has a very different style and different outlook from current Chief Justice uh, Zondo. And so what might possibly happen, She, I know she's a, a really strong administrator. Um, she also is a very hardworking and, and a really strong taskmaster. So what might possibly happen is that some of the changes, some of the blockages in the judiciary and the judicial system as a whole, those might be cleared. So there's less of a risk and more of, a, I think, a, a positive, depending on who is ultimately selected as leader. Having said that, those significant changes at the top level, how do you think public perception and trust then in the judiciary might be affected, again, if at all? Well, I think if For example, again, if the current Deputy Chief Justice becomes Chief Justice, that would have a a positive public sentiment because she would be the first woman Chief Justice in the history of South Africa. And also she comes from humble beginnings, for example. And so it would be something of a a miracle story for her to have ascended to that position. But on a wider level, in terms of the, the general leadership The judiciary has traditionally had a positive reputation in South African society. And that is a reputation that they've earned, that our judges have earned. And so what I would expect is that there would be a move towards clearing some of the criticisms that the judiciary has has received. For example, how slow cases move through the system and how sometimes there does seem to be a reluctance among the judiciary or judges to act against their own who um, don't follow the codes of conduct or the integrity that is expected of judges. And so I think those kinds of 
criticisms would get some level of attention and they would probably be addressed uh, more rapidly than they have up to this point. There's also the issue of the judiciary's relationship with other branches of government uh, changing, evolving, particularly in the light of the outgoing Chief Justice Zondo's frustrations that he has uh, expressed quite publicly. Yes. So towards the end of last year, you'll recall that there were some tensions between the current Chief Justice Zondo and Parliament uh, over the Zondo Commission reports and how slow Parliament is implementing those reports. And those kinds of tensions, even though they don't relate to the judiciary, they do have a profound impact on the judiciary because suddenly the attitudes of parliament harden towards the judiciary and that kind of thing you don't want. And even if we take it to the executive as well, Chief Justice Zonda expressed a lot of frustration with how slow the government was moving with addressing some of the administrative issues that the judiciary is facing. So those kinds of tensions uh, one would expect would subside um, with a change in leadership because they very much were uh, related to the personality and the character of of Chief Justice Zondo, even though some of the frustrations that he had on the administrative issues, for example, were relevant and were necessary because the government has not been playing ball when it comes to assisting the judiciary be more effective. But Of course, we hope or we expect that with a change in leadership, those relations between the judiciary and other arms Mm. of government would be addressed and would be smoothed out, so to speak. And in conclusion, a big question, but I need a brief answer. How should ordinary South Africans be attentive to these developments in the judiciary this year? And why is getting this right critical for our future? Well, I think all South Africans should pay particular attention to the judiciary. In recent times, the judiciary has held quite a a strong line against some of the worst excesses of the government when it comes to corruption, when it comes to just the general issues of the rule of law. And so it is important that we all focus on this leadership transition, but also on the judiciary as an institution, because so many of our day-to-day lives are affected by the decisions mm. of the judiciary. Thank you very much indeed. And Becky Zeli Benjamin, Research and Advocacy Officer at Judges Matter. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. The annual matric results dog and pony show is just around the corner and Dr. Louis Benjamin, an independent educational consultant, says once again the minister is going to regale us with another astounding set of facts and figures that he says will show the education system is strengthening. Well, we all know that's far from the truth, but remember, we are in an election year. Dr. Benjamin is with me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And first of all, doctor, you have a very cynical take on this annual event, don't you? The obsessive compulsion with this event, and I cannot entertain the idea that if, if you close your eyes and hear in the background the millions and millions of children that are not represented there every year, those children that fall of the bus and not bringing them to mind at an event like this is a real travesty. We're ignoring almost millions of children that are not represented. And to focus on one point in the education system every year with this kind of uh, obsessive uh, need to prove ourselves is a little distasteful in my mind. And it's not to say and and not to deride all the enormous and tremendous efforts, especially of those uh, children who have got there under 
unbelievably trying circumstances. But the event itself, it seems a, a bit of an empty mm. event to make up for all the, the difficulties that we actually experiencing without really acknowledging it. So let's look at let's look at some of those difficulties then if we can. And uh, you propose mm-hmm. that uh, there is more of a systemic approach. For instance, we need to yeah. address the high percentage of grade four learners who are struggling with yeah. reading and comprehension. Amplify that for me, please. Let me just say that there, this would be four important points in the education system. There's the entry point at grade R, and there's the exit point at grade 12. Admittedly, a very important one. Admittedly, a very important one when we enter. But there's also three, six, and nine. These are the critical gatekeeping points in the system. They need incredible focus every year for us to be updated and kept informed of how we're doing and whether we're on track or not. That year, the three going into four to address your your direct question is absolutely essential. It's where the children have mastered the fundamentals for learning. That's reading, writing, and mathematics. That's almost a point of no return. If those cornerstones haven't been put adequately in place by then, I'm a lecturer and teacher of cognitive education. We do know that education is a very slow, gradual, progressive process that builds sequentially in a developmental way year on Mm. year. We cannot skip any of these critical junctures. And if we do, we know that we're going to have to return to consolidate and to catch up in inverted commas and then move forward. There should be no surprises, unlike that metric event. So this to explain Mm. my feelings about no surprises, no magic envelope that you're going to hand over and say, we should know what's going to happen. But in fact, it's always a little bit surprising for all of us education commentators to know where the emphasis is going to lie with the presentation every year. So how, in your opinion, then, do we return to those cornerstones that you've outlined? And you're suggesting a state of the nation address about educational progress. What does that mean and what would that achieve? I'm saying that it should be broader. We should focus not only on on the good points. Admittedly, we should really celebrate those children. And sometimes even if they're outliers who have succeeded and make sure that they are actually going to take the next step. And um, I would say that an event should focus critically on those four key points that I've already mentioned. We should know to get the status and the health of the system, where children are at when they enter the system, when they've made the first three years, and then three years on, and three years later in grade nine. And then the exit point almost goes without needing to mention it at all. So those would be one of the aspects that I'd say would be critical for Mm. a presentation about the system every year. But if you had to ask my bias, I'm um, a specialist in the early childhood years, I would say without a doubt, more emphasis needs to be put in at the beginning point of the system. We, we just know too much about how essential those early foundational mm. years are. We also know that for each child, the journey is slightly different. And particularly if we're dealing with the majority of children in this country who come from enormously challenging circumstances, they might need to spend the extra year or two starting to develop those competencies that don't just like fall in your lap because you're in an education system or even going to a school. It is a very delicate, uh, in fact, a complex process for children to start to attain those kind of thinking skills that are required to unpack the curriculum. And by the way, the curriculum is the same for all children, no matter where they are, whether they come from Constantia or from Kailicha. 
The first day at school, they all confronted with the same curriculum. There are no accommodations made for what special interventions or assistance that children might have taking their uh, backgrounds and circumstances into account in order to hook into that curriculum. And from a cognitive developmental perspective, some children just didn't, even in privileged middle class, we know how many children go through special ed and support and need remedial, physio, OT, etc. Imagine children coming with two or three years of significant disadvantage, starting at exactly the same starting point. So let me ask you a final question then. What are your thoughts on the best ways then to support and help teachers, particularly in the context, as you've just outlined to me, of improving content knowledge and language and mathematics instruction? I think there needs to be explicit focus on the important aspects and and not so much pushing the curriculum and ticking the boxes. Our greatest work in our organization is getting teachers to sit down with children and to acknowledge where they're at and to match their interventions with where the children are. So it's almost uh, being able to recognize the developmental needs of children. And sometimes they're not only cognitive, they're emotional and social, to be able to settle children into learning, to get them interested, enthusiastic and curious. Those are some of the basic fundamentals. And stopping with those assumptions that children who are at school in a particular grade or stage or might not, in fact, be. Those are one of my lessons that I teach my students over and over again, is that we need to be able to tune into where these children mm. are, what some of the gaps or difficulties might be, and then start to address them where they're at. The system that seems to roll on each year, not taking account whether children are three, four, five years behind. I'm not speaking about subtle little differences. By the time children enter grade one, there can be two or three years disparities in terms of the grade level that they should be on. It's just enormous. So I'm not surprised at all when it comes to the kind of metric results uh, session that we see every year that we have to acknowledge how many children actually are not making it through to metric. I think my anger came from the, the, the kind of the papering over of the gross difficulties that the system is facing to eke out a few uh, positive results. Dr. Louis Benjamin, thank you very much indeed for that very forthright uh, assessment. Matric results, by the way, will be announced on the 18th of January. Thank you very much for your time. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. And finally on today's program, the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says it's noted with some concern a Department of Health statement about the number of teenagers giving birth over the Christmas and New Year's period. More now from Professor Zozo Nene, President of the College. And first up, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Why have you seen fit to issue this statement? I think from the clinician's point of view, this is a problem that is an ongoing problem from year to year. And what we find is that we always get the statistics and we get shocked from the statistics and yet nothing is being done or not enough is being done, let me put it that way. And I feel that we should really be coming together as a society and lead from the society point of view from the College of Medicine of South Africa, especially as obstetricians and gynecologists because these children or patients come to us and we see the end result of this teenage pregnancy. I'm really just calling for everybody to come together to find solutions to this because whatever it is that we are doing now doesn't mm. seem to be having an impact. So we need 
to go back and to the drawing table and strategize and put programs in place. Professor, are you able to identify any factors that you believe are then contributing to the increasing trend of teenage pregnancy? Well, there's various factors and some have been reported quite widely, but I see firstly that there is lack of information for the teenagers. They are not taking responsibility of their own bodies. So they don't have access also to all of these services, the sexual reproductive health services. If they do fall pregnant, we prefer that rather we prevent the pregnancy, which means they need access to information on contraception and they need access to the actual service uh, provision of um, contraception. Then if they do fall pregnant, then they need access to termination of pregnancy services. So there are not enough facilities and I don't think the information is out there. They are not educated enough on where to access these facilities. And some of these facilities, they are not really friendly. They don't provide an environment for them to be comfortable to come and ask for the assistance that they need. So what I'm advocating for is that we should really make sure that there's functional adolescent and youth-friendly services where these young kids can come to the service and they can get assistance and help without being stigmatized, without Mm. us finding reasons to create more barriers for them to access these services. What would construe or enable a, a more friendly environment then? So I think firstly, in those services, we should make sure that there are young people that work there because they can talk the same language. They can see a young person who is able to give them the information that they need. So we need to make sure that they are properly trained, they are properly accessible. Mm. And secondly, that the healthcare providers in those services have enough knowledge. We should upskill them because they should provide the counseling that the youth need on the various methods and make them be the ones that make the choice, an informed choice of what is best for them. And from then on, we assist them to manage whatever comes up. If there's complications or side effects or unwanted effects, we should be able to manage it so that the youth or the young girl knows that this is the right method for me. And Professor, you're also concerned about specific health complications associated with teenage pregnancy and childbirth, aren't you? I certainly am, because I said earlier I'm a clinician and this is where I work. This is my space. I'm employed at Steve Biko Academic Hospital and University of Pretoria. And this is where we see it. And that's why I'm saying the numbers alone are not telling us about the actual complications of teenage pregnancy. So we don't know how many of them had cesarean section. We don't know how many of them had preterm birth and those babies that are now sitting in neonatal ICU and we know the cost of the neonatal ICU. And we don't know how many of them had hypertension and all of its complications. They can get fits like eclampsia. They can get admitted to ICU. And there's the reports of maternal death among the young people because of these complications. I mean, the recent Saving Mothers report of 2022 is telling us that there are about 50 per 100,000 girls of 10 to 14 that have died because of complications either during pregnancy or at the time of childbirth. So this is not something that we can ignore because we can see that children are dying 
from complications of pregnancy. I'm going to leave it there. Professor Zozoneni, thank you very much indeed. And before we go, other stories on our radar. News 24 reporting that a Canadian tourist and his two children have been abducted, assaulted, robbed and threatened by f- for about four hours by bogus police officers in Mpumalanga. And Israel's president has told the visiting U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, that South Africa's genocide claim to be heard at the International Court of Justice, in his words, is atrocious and preposterous. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.